0: Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Jesus, I will ponder now on your holy passion, with your spirit me endow for such meditation. Grant that I, in love and faith, may the image cherish of your suffering, pain, and death, that I may not perish. Lutheran Service Book, number 440, stanza one. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. What is poetry? How can poetry aid our Holy Week meditation? What are some exemplary poems to ponder for Holy Week? joining us today for this special Holy Week episode is Reverend Anthony Dodgers. Pastor Dodgers shepherds the flock at Emanuel Lutheran in Charlotte, Iowa, is husband to Betsy, father to baby Dodgers, and has a special fondness for poetry. Pastor Dodgers, welcome back!
1: Thanks, Jocelyn. This is great to be back as we get ready for, well, I'm getting ready for Holy Week. Uh, when this airs, you'll already be in Holy Week, but uh I especially do enjoy the kinds of poetry that uh, gets used or can be used during Holy Week, so I'm happy to talk about it. And uh, I just want to share one personal note sort of related to my love of poetry. That was something I found recently. I was reminded of when I was flipping through a copy of John Donne's poems, uh, this copy I had bought for my wife Betsy once for her birthday. And uh, in the front of it, I wrote this inscription. Good poetry is like good theology. Both delight, reveal, magnify beauty, challenge, give rest, and do not wear out. So, I don't know. You can take that for what it's worth. It's from me, so it's not worth too much. But I thought, oh, that actually does kind of sum up uh, my general thoughts and feelings on poetry.
0: Yeah, that is... Excellent. And I think that that really uh, helps set the tone for our conversation today, because uh, as we think about Holy Week, we certainly think about good theology, right? I mean, that is Holy Week. And so good poetry uh, fits right in with that. So thinking about Poetry. Uh, let's start off as we many times do, and and ask the question: What is poetry? How would you define poetry?
1: I'd say the simplest definition is that poetry is something, or it's it's expressing something, uh, not necessarily written. It can be just purely oral too, but it's expressing something in metrical form, and. That was my my uh, definition, but I went and checked Webster's to see what he said, and actually he said just just about the same thing. I would add to that something beyond the sort of structure of poetry, and that is the use of images that poetry, by and large, it doesn't have to, but it often will employ, image images it it shows more than tells i guess is one way to think of it in an earlier conversation that you and i had about literature in general i said that literature and also then poetry bring uh beauty first and then uh beauty brings truth and goodness along with it but when we read a story or especially when we are encountering a poem we are experiencing first and foremost beauty and then through beauty we come to see truth and goodness but the images are usually the main thing in in poetry and so also um <clears throat> The images can just be describing a place. Poetry can often be very good to sort of describe a scene, a picture, give you a feeling of that place or that person. But also the images can be used in what we call metaphors, where you're comparing different images. And that's another common aspect of poetry. So first, uh, it's just something in metrical form, but then it usually employs uh, very... Uh, descriptive language, gives you these images in your mind's eye, and then often compares those images to uh, give you metaphors so that you can sort of learn about something by means of comparing and contrasting r- different images.
0: So in poetry, there's really, um, it, it, it's, it's similar to literature in that it's experiential, right? But in that it is is metrical, we're experiencing in a different way than we would literature in general.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's definitely very experiential. And uh, I would say right off the bat that poetry, I think, should be an oral art form, even poem, I mean, it's good that poetry is written down, of course, but even when you pick up a book of poems, I would say read it out loud at, at least at some point uh, because it's, part of it is the hearing of the words. What do the words sound like in your mouth and in your ears? There's sort of a musical, uh, poetry is highlighting the musical side of our language.
0: Yeah, I, I I really like that uh that image. Uh no pun intended <laughs> that you that you painted for us. Um because it immediately uh brings to mind, you know, maybe some some different categories of poetry that that we could explore. I mean, when we think poetry uh especially outside of the church, right? So we just we would think about uh, picking up a book of poems, or we would think of, you know, famous poets. Um, inside the church, uh, we would probably, and, and even those, you know, perhaps who study poetry outside the church would consider these things, but inside the church, you know, perhaps three categories uh, would come to mind, you know, certainly poetry just in general, but also uh, hymns, and psalms might come to mind in terms of if we were to categorize poetry.
1: Yeah, the psalms, maybe we could take them first, are certainly uh, Hebrew poetry. We know that, uh, or maybe we maybe we know that on sort of an intellectual level. I don't know if we really know of it as quite as well in, on an experiential level, and that's because they're a very different kind of poetry than what we're used to in the English language, right? They were written in Hebrew, and they follow the sort of patterns of Hebrew poetry, which is not the same. There's no Hebrew sonnets, you know, the way that we have the English sonnet. It's just they have a very different type of form and pattern for their poetry. And so when we translate it, when we translate the Psalms into English, it's often difficult to really capture the poetic nature of them uh, and we in some translations try to do that but it's it can be it can be difficult uh, the hymns on the other, well hymns are are can be a, a, a similar problem because for many of us Lutherans we like to sing Lutheran hymns which were often written in German and so then we want to translate them into English and so then there again how do you translate a text so that it means the same thing but also fits the meter that you want and has the rhymes that you need you know to make it a singable uh him, uh, so those are two different challenges to those types of uh, of poetry. But we, uh, it, there's cert- it's certainly possible, and we have wonderful examples of them, uh, you know, in our own hymnal that we'll probably be using during this uh, Holy Week
0: you know one one thing i was pondering as as i was thinking about our discussion today uh was the role of the translator and just you know as as kind of a i would call myself a novice right i mean in terms of of poetry reading i i love hymnity i love the psalms i love poetry um I would say that aside from a few classes in undergrad, I haven't spent a ton of time studying poetry. I love reading poetry and, and uh, have, have tried to incorporate that into our family life, you know, just that that's, that's a normal thing uh, in our home. Um, but I, I find myself, especially as I was thinking about our conversation, I found myself going, huh, I think this is a good poem, but I wonder what the original was, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, has yeah. has the translator duped me? You know, and and do I do I just depend on uh the d- do I do I depend on the the character and the honesty of of the translator that uh, he or she got it right? You know, as 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 those of us who who love uh, hymnody, you know, we know that there are certain translators right that we're we're like oh yeah it was translated by her it was translated by him it's probably you know we can we can depend on that but um not having a german background i find myself at a loss that i can't go and and make the comparison
1: yeah i know i know what you mean i i i feel the same way sometimes and you know i guess on the one hand then we should just say Okay, but is the hymn that I now have, which maybe you could think of it as a collaborative effort between, say, Paul Gerhardt and Catherine Winkworth or whoever translated him, right uh, you know, think so so the, the the hymn that we now have, uh isn't quite Paul Gerhardt's hymn, but it's the one that we have and is it still a good a good hymn? Is it still a good poem, then 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 that's great, you know, then we can just sort of take it that way. Um and uh and, and realize, you know, that we're not, we're not really missing out, you know, it's not as if uh, we, you know, we can't sing any of these hymns, because they're not, they're not just the right original, uh, text at all. They're still, they're still very good for us to, to sing. So just so none of our listeners start to get, you know, despairing and say, well, I can't, I can't sing any hymns anymore, you know?
0: (laughs) Right. Back to the German and back to the Latin. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
1: Which I suppose is a good, good argument then for why, uh, it's good to learn these other languages, to learn Latin, to learn German, uh, Greek and Hebrew so that you can, you know, um, Check these things out for yourself. Uh, On the other hand, I I definitely think it's worthwhile to enjoy these. Uh, works of art in your own native language and to let them let them be what they are even in their translated form, which may not be quite the same as the as the original. And uh, that's part of you know you said you're a novice and uh, the other term that I think I've actually come to like more is uh, to consider myself an amateur since the root of the word is is love, right And so that an amateur is someone who actually, sort of loves the thing for the thing itself. you know, he he's not an expert. He hasn't studied it, but he just loves it and enjoys it.
0: yeah, i I like that. That is that is fantastic. so since since the psalm, they're kind of in a category unto themselves, just because of of the nature of of Hebrew poetry. Um, but as we're thinking about, you know um, our our Holy Week meditation. Uh, you know we started uh, with um, uh, Jesus. I will ponder now that first stanza from from uh, LSB 440. You know uh, Jesus. I will ponder now on your holy passion. And when when I think about uh, pondering. Jesus' passion, one of the things that always comes to mind for me, um, and and I can even hear uh, our our cantor's voice uh, chanting uh, Psalm 22, that always comes to mind. And so uh, just real briefly, um, how can perhaps the Psalms, and maybe uh, we can just stick to Psalm 22 in particular, um, why is this helpful for our Uh, for our Holy Week meditation?
1: I think Psalm 22, it will be a great example, especially, uh, you know, when you think of it, how it's traditionally used in our churches, it's being sung while the altar is being stripped on Maundy Thursday evening. And so it is a dramatic movement in our services and we might be singing it or listening to it while there's actions being taken that also have a great deal of significance. The the uh, pictures, the images that the psalm uh, contains are also uh, very significant, and that's why I mentioned before that while meter sort of is part of the definition of of a, of a poem, the images are really just as important when it comes to reading and understanding poems. I I would say to anybody who's a little scared of poetry, and they because a lot of people get Get nervous about it because it's not—it's <laughs> yeah. not straightforward, you know. And then this happened, and this happened uh, like a novel. It's—it's uh, it's really more like looking. Poems are really more like looking at a painting. I think you—you are—you don't. It's—it's. It's, I would just. My advice is to pay attention to the images. Um, what 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 scenes are described how does that make you feel it is really kind of a even more uh, experiential more emotional in a sense than than maybe a novel might be uh so the images in psalm 22 are are just are are great they're very stark and uh, very maybe even a little surprising uh you know there's there's dog the the psalmist the psalmist who's who's praying this describes being surrounded by uh, dogs you know trying to devour him or the wild bulls of Bashan you know with their their horns ready to uh, to gore him he describes himself as a worm he says you know I'm a worm and not a man and even the way that he describes his body. Uh, You know, all my bones are out of joint and he's sort of stretched and gaunt and just um, his, his, what is it? His, uh, I don't have it in front of me, but his tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth or something like that. The dryness, Uh, this is, these are all, these images are meant to spark our imagination and get us, give us the feeling of, of attack and despair, right? Uh, which is where, what, why it begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a cry of despair, a cry of one who is alone, surrounded by enemies. And of course, as Christians, we know that the psalmist, the person who's actually praying this psalm, is Jesus. And you might say, now wait, but Jesus was never surrounded by bloodthirsty dogs or wild bulls. Uh, no, but he was surrounded by enemies. and the use of these animal, the, these animals and the, uh, the visceral imagery that the psalm has gives us the, the feeling, the experience of a, a little taste of the experience that Christ has surrounded by his enemies and, and hanging there on the cross.
0: Yeah, and 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 gives uh, real flesh to um the the whole idea of you know when when Jesus was on the cross he, he took on all of our sin, you know, and, and we war against the the devil the world and our in our sinful flesh. And so it it puts an image on uh the devil, the world, and our sinful flesh in in a very uh as as you said, a, a visceral way. Uh, which which is fantastic. Um, so yeah, I would definitely, um, for our listeners, commend to them uh, Psalm 22. So stepping then from, uh, from the Psalms, because as, as we discussed, those are kind of a thing unto themselves, um, let's dive into uh, hymns. And and then after that, uh, hopefully we'll we'll have some time then to get into um, introduce our listeners uh, to some poetry uh, for Holy Week with which they might not uh, be familiar.
1: Sounds good. Uh, so hymns are also a little tricky. Uh, one one because of the translation issue. If you're working with a you know say it's a Paul Gerhardt hymn that needs to be translated from German into English, but also I found it to be a little difficult to to really say what hymns are good examples of poetry because technically all hymns are poetry. They all have uh, a meter. They all even rhyme. I mean, I think almost I think all hymns uh, rhyme. Not. Poetry does not have to rhyme. Uh, Meter is more essential in the definition of a poem than the rhyming, but many poems do. So, uh, So technically, all hymns are poetry. What makes some of them stand out over others? And one of my, this is just Anthony Dodger's criteria that he came up with, so, you know, you can uh, disagree with this and or, or add to it but one of the things I thought is uh, I wanted to look for hymns that had a what I call a sort of musicality in their very language in the words that they used and just, the the feeling of the words as you speak them and as you hear them. I don't know if other people don't think of words this way, but I do. that that words Words have they words have a feeling just on your on your tongue and the, and in, in your in your ear, uh, and so what's is there a, is there a sort of a, a musicality to the language even apart from the actual music right so all the one thing that's unique about hymns as poems is that they are also accompanied by some some arrangement of music and i think music can hide a certain lack of this this kind of poetic language I'm trying to talk about, and and don't don't hear me in saying that music is bad or you know uh, or anything like that. But I guess one one of the things I thought about was when I was looking for hymns that really are good examples of of just good straight up poetry, I thought. I, I would read the hymn out loud as I would read a, a sonnet or a, or a poem. And does that sound it sound good, I guess? Uh, some hymns, you know, you do that, and it's fine. There's a meter, there's rhyme and all that. It's perfectly fine, but it doesn't stand out really in any way. Other ones I thought really kind of Pop, just there. There, the word choice is just perfect, and the way they fit together uh, flows so nicely. And then, of course, the very best hymns are when you have words and music wedded together in in perfect harmony, right? Uh, the other thing that to, to, that I wanted to look for in in looking at some hymns is again the poetic imagery, the use of metaphor in the hymns, because a, a lot of hymns are kind of straightforward storytelling, you know, they just like, they tell the story of Jesus, even a lot of our Lent and Holy Week hymns, it's just, you know, then Jesus suffered, and they laughed at him, and, you know, just sort of tells the story of his passion, which is great, it's wonderful, and it's all in beautiful meter and rhyme and all of that, but uh, I think the hymns that stand out as really good poetry are the ones that also employ that sort of Metaphorical imagery as well, and I, I noticed that uh, in Webster's dictionary, uh, he there's an addition to his definition of poetry. He said he said this, uh, speaking about the term poetry. This term is also applied to the language of excited imagination and feeling, and I thought that was kind of an. Interesting way to explain. I think what I'm trying to get at. Uh, do the words of this hymn excite imagination and feeling?
0: Yeah, I, I think that um, you know, kind of tying that in with what we were talking about before, that there become the the imagery um, excites an experience. Right? It becomes something that that that. W- we're not just hearing and we're not just reading but we're we're feeling and we're experiencing because god has given us our senses as a gift um, that poetry is a gift to the senses and I don't think you know. I think a lot of times we think of you know the visual arts. Uh, we think of music, but but we don't always think of poetry as part of that. These gifts that uh, that God has given us um, that that do excite, um, as as Webster said, um, excite the imagination and feeling. A good poetry becomes something that. Um, has more than one layer to it, right? Uh, so, so maybe we're we're looking for onion poetry, right? That <laughs> that has has lots of lots of layers um, that that we can experience uh, the depth uh, that and you know you use the 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 phrase you know these these hymns just kind of popped, and I think that that might be um, kind of that that feeling of there's just something different about that. And maybe it's that depth that, that we're sensing.
1: Yeah, I think so. There is a a, a depth when, when, when uh, a poet truly uses a great skill and care in exercising his art, you know, in crafting his words. And uh, I was going to mention it earlier and I forgot. So I'm going to do it now and uh, come out, uh, I don't know if this is controversial or not but I was going to use something as a bad example of what I'm what I'm talking about and that is frankly most contemporary music most contemporary christian songs my you know what what my test was for these hymns was does this sound like a good poem when I just read it without the music because i said music while while very good and wonderful and we want good music for our hymns can hide a lack of poetic language because the music makes up for it you know and the, the the beautiful tune just sort of makes up for it and that is definitely the case when you come to a lot of modern christian worship music that's written that it's very repetitive it's very basic there it's you know you're talking about depth there's no depth it's all on the surface just very straightforward and when you take away the music take away the exciting accompaniments from the various instruments that are used and you just read it it is boring right yeah. there's nothing interesting about the words themselves how they sound or how they really affect you and that's that's the, i think a good test that okay uh, the words aren't really affecting you here it's the and the art for art of the words is not affecting you; it's the music that's affecting you. And yeah, I, it, yeah,
0: yeah. Absolutely. No, I think that's that's a, a fantastic comparison. It's it's like a uh, it, it's almost like a mirage, right? You think there's depth there because you 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 think you're seeing depth, uh, but then when you actually get up to it, you realize that you weren't seeing anything at all.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe I should give a couple examples so that people can uh, have an idea a better idea of what I'm trying to talk about the first one I wanted to go wanted to uh, give is from uh, our hymnal LSB 448 o darkest woe and maybe I'll just read a couple of the stanzas that uh, I, f- I found to be well, that they just had that kind of moving language that sounds appealing in the ear and on the lip uh, and then also paints some very vivid pictures in our minds. O sorrow dread, our God is dead, upon the cross extended. There his love enlivened us as his life was ended. O child of woe, who struck the blow that on the cross, uh, that killed our gracious master? It was I, thy conscience cries, I have wrought disaster. The bridegroom dead, God's lamb has bled upon thy sin forever, pouring out his sinless self in this vast endeavor. That just gives you a little taste of what i'm talking about the uh, unique rhythm that it has when the first couple lines these very short uh, abrupt kind of jarring lines oh sorrow dread our god is dead i mean that just sort of hits you right there without any music needed uh, the music added to it is wonderful but just the words themselves and the rhythm of the words gets you uh, gives you that uh, Gives you that visceral feeling we were mentioning before, right? And then uh, some of the imagery of uh, you know that we're ch- that we're children of woe, uh, that that our, our you know Christ it's not just a a man who died, but it's the bridegroom. You know, to think about, to call, to say that the bridegroom, the bridegroom died. I mean, that's a very tragic image, right? Normally, the bridegroom is an image of of joy. <laughs>
0: yeah and and realizing that uh oh child of woe you know that that that's uh that's addressing us yeah right right I, you know and and so uh even more so than just the images um uh bringing us into this I mean literally we're placed into this poem right yeah. I mean we are a character in in this poem and uh and you know our 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 listeners can't see this unless they're unless they hopefully they all got out their hymnals when they (laughs) knew that we were talking about hymnody and they're following along um but there's a colon after oh child of woe right so that means it's going to it's going to expound on uh what this is which means that that i'm the one who struck the blow Right yeah. and and that you know it, I mean it's kind of like um, when when in your your congregation uh, th- that we that we read the gospel and the words of the crowd are put into the congregation's mouths and we and we say crucify him crucify him right just the the visceral reality of that um, that that same. As, as you were reading that, um, and you know, truth be told, this is the first time that I've read this poem, uh, read this hymn and not just sung this hymn. So this is fantastic. Uh, you're just getting my raw reaction here. Um, <laughs> but when, when you read that, um, it, it, I had that same reaction, you know, that, that I, I am the one who struck the blow. Right? I know that. I know it was my sin that killed Jesus, Um, but uh, reading that really puts you back there.
1: Yeah, and that's, I think, a uh, very—that is a very poetic thing to do, and it's maybe even sort of strange because as Christians and as churchgoers and hymn singers— we're actually really used to this because it's in a lot of our hymns right and and we hear it from the pulpit all the time you know that it, that we are the ones who who crucified christ or as you said you know like when we read the passion account that way and we say the words ourselves it almost becomes a little commonplace in a way but that is that is a very unique and poetic thing to do to to put you into the story so that you realize uh more in in more than just sort of an abstract theoretical yeah jesus died because of my sins this this drives it home that we are the reason he died right we are actually active in it
0: yeah absolutely and uh the 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 use of Um, going back to a comment that you had made, uh, previously, um, thy bridegroom dead, you know, that, that this is, you killed your bridegroom,
1: right? Yeah, that's a good point. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It says thy, not just the bridegroom dead, but thy bridegroom, right? That, that's a, a kind of a neat thing about this, this one in particular, that the first phrase in each stanza is sort of an address, um, you know, uh, to either to Christ or to or to us. You know, so uh, there's uh, sort of oh darkest woe, O sorrow dread" are sort of uh, addressing uh, Christ in some way, but "O child of woe" is of course addressing us, and "Thy bridegroom dead" is also addressing us. You know, turn to kind of turning on ourselves and saying your, you know, your bridegroom, your husband, Christ is, is dead. Uh, And then it it also addresses Christ again later on with such innocence and O Virgin Son and O Jesus Christ. But so that's another uh, neat thing that poems and, and hymns often do where they sort of address, uh, you know, address God or address us or even address, uh, you know, there's, uh, Hymns that address the angels or the saints uh, directly, you know, and it just it it it's not it is imaginative, but it is also real. We're not just play acting. Uh, we are, realize that we are actually talking to Christ or to our uh, to ourselves or to even to uh, the saints.
0: You had mentioned um, uh, a, a little bit earlier, uh, just. Uh, our our listeners experiencing these things and I want to remind take this opportunity real briefly to just remind our, our listeners uh, to interact with us uh, to go to our, our Facebook page uh, whether that's the Wittenberg hour Facebook page uh, or the Wittenberg Academy Facebook page and uh, to interact with us and and uh, and experience uh, these things with us so uh, that's a little aside but I wanted to make sure I didn't uh, forget to to put that in there. Do you have another example for us?
1: Yeah, I'd like to also look at "O oh, Sacred Head, Now Wounded," uh, number four five zero. It's uh, there's actually two, two, uh, t- two times in the hymnal four four nine and four five zero. But um, I'm going to uh, four five zero has. More stanzas than the other one. Uh, anyways, uh, I also wanted to mention about you know interacting with us on Facebook. Is I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm hoping that you know as our listeners uh, go through the Holy Week services, they will notice other uh, great examples of poetry in our hymnal and in our in our liturgy that they can share and point out with us there, uh, and we can talk about that some more. Well, uh, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, uh, I guess I want to read stanza one and stanza six, uh, just to give us a few examples of the kind of uh, poetry that's used here. O sacred head, now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns, thine only crown. O sacred head, what glory, what bliss, till now was thine. Yet though despised and gory, I joy to call thee mine. My Savior, be thou near me when death is at my door. Then let thy presence cheer me, forsake me nevermore. When soul and body languish, O leave me not alone, but take away mine anguish by virtue of thine own. This is... a. uh, so this actually is a collaborative effort. You know, I said that some many of our poems in English, we sort of have to sort of just take as a collaborative effort between the original hymn writer uh, and the translator. This is uh, three, actually, three contributors, p- because it's based originally on uh, hymn uh, or poetry written by Bernard of Clairvaux, which was then taken up by Paul Gerhardt and, Uh, arranged into a German chorale sort of framework uh, and now has been translated into English. Uh, So I believe actually in the original poetry of Bernard of Clairvaux, he actually had uh, compositions based on different parts of Christ's body. Uh, What we have here is the one based on his sacred head. Oh, sacred head now wounded. But then he does, I think, uh, I believe, uh, Will Whedon is probably the one to talk to about this, you know, but that he talks about, uh, the hands of Christ and the side of Christ and, uh, all those sorts of things. And so that's another thing that I think poetry does very nicely is how it can zero in on something and just sort of live there for a while and really meditate on it and, uh, let us dwell, uh, dwell there and, uh, allow the uh all those all the images that it presents to us to really sort of uh fill us and uh or that we can kind of mull over them and explore them from from different angles danza six which i read uh, i wanted to read just to point out a um a really great but you know maybe again sort of commonplace metaphor that we uh, we're, we're used to i suppose but uh it maybe we're used to it because it's just so good you know my savior be thou near me when death is at my door i mean that's that's more metaphorical language right we don't you know i know cartoons have that you got the guy opens the door and there's death with the black hood and the sickle and all or the uh scythe um waiting there for him right uh, you know it's telling you it's it's time uh, but that doesn't actually happen it this is this is an image this is a metaphor to make us think about the imminence of death and how death can come to us can come upon us it sometimes sometimes unexpectedly uh, other times we see you know we see it coming and so we prepare to die uh, but this, this hymn in particular uh, draws the connection through these images. It draws the connection between Christ's death and our own death and Christ's agony and our own agony and that uh, the remedy for our agony, the remedy for our death is Christ's suffering and Christ's death.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things that... As we uh, go through Holy Week, you know there there is a certain um, it, you know there's certainly joy within the 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 sadness, but there is also I mean just physically and and maybe it's just because there are so many services, um, but there is an an element of exhaustion that you know pastors certainly um, yeah. <laughs> must yeah. must feel this. Um, <laughs> those of us lay people also, uh, experience that, uh, exhaustion. And some of it's emotional, uh, some of it's, it's physical. Um, some of it is, is just the, the reality of, of the weight of, of, you know, the, the gravity of all of this. And, and I think that that stanza, um, and, and your comments here, uh, really, uh, kind of let that um, hit home in terms of, um, you know, in the the languishing that that we might uh, feel, you know, by the end of, of Holy Week, um, that to your point that Christ has not uh, given us to experience anything that he has not experienced himself, right? And so I yeah. think that that's something that, that sometimes we, you know, just like uh, O Darkest Woe put us in there, right, that, that it's, it's a good thing for us to remember that we're not outsiders in this. And the fact that we're not outsiders actually is a really comforting thing. And this poetry can really help us experience that at a different level.
1: Yeah, I think so. That's I think that's a good way to put it. And maybe even to add that uh, Christ, all, Christ is also not an outsider. I mean, I'm, I guess in a way that's obvious because he's the one we're looking at suffering and dying and everything. But to realize that that means we have a god and a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses right that as you said that he he uh, has gone through all of this before us uh, he's gone through death itself and made made it a, a way for us to follow him to follow him through it uh, so uh, yeah, I, I love singing this hymn on Good Friday and I cause I kind of th- even already on Good Friday, you know you haven't gotten to the Easter Vigil or Easter Day yet, but you're already kind of getting a little tired if you've been, especially if you've been uh, like I do have a, have at least at least a matin service every day um, during that week. And so it's already you're starting to get tired. and this hymn is a, uh, it's a peaceful. Uh, reflection on Christ's suffering and death it's not the it doesn't quite get to the whole you know visceral punch in the gut kind of thing that we had with o darkest woe or with psalm 22 it's it's much more quiet and contemplative and i think it's because it's trying to use christ's passion and death to prepare us for our own Right, and that is our prayer as Christians that we would be able to die in peace. That it wouldn't be this, you know, horrible, horrific uh, struggle. I mean, sometimes it is in the deaths of the martyrs, but uh, we do pray for a a um, you know a blessed end, um, a, a, a quiet, uh, peaceful end, and that's what this this hymn, I think, is. It that's one of its goals, at least.
0: So Pastor Dodgers, we have uh, spent some time in the Psalms and we've spent some time in the hymns uh, examining uh, hymns in particular, uh, and the the poetic gift that they are to us. Now, we began uh, the episode talking about the fact that when we think poetry, right, when we were talking about uh, what is poetry, when we think poetry, usually the first thing that comes to mind is not a hymn or a psalm. We think of you know, a, a poem that we would have read in English class, or we think of Shakespeare's sonnets, All right? That's what uh, we think of when we think of poetry. And so this brings back to mind uh, what you wrote in your wife's book of John Donne's poems. Uh, and if it's okay, I'm, I'm going to read back your quote to you. Um, yep, you please. you, you kind, of, kind of downplayed it before, but I think it's, it's very profound. So uh, maybe if, if we just keep repeating it, uh, it will go into the annals of time. Um,
1: <laughs> oh boy, well, thank you. <laughs>
0: uh, you. You wrote, good poetry is like good theology both delight, reveal, magnify beauty, challenge, give rest, and do not wear out. And so I think that really brings us into uh, looking at some poetry outside of what we might encounter in the church uh, and allow us to realize that this poetry, too, can aid us in our holy week meditation
1: yeah i hope that i've picked a couple good selections here they're gonna be uh, sacred poetry that i that i picked uh from two christian authors two christian poets even two uh ministers uh but uh i guess i would also just add that i think i think uh all poetry unless it's you know purposefully written against god against christ but really all poetry even po- even a lot of poetry that might a- appear on the surface a little more secular can still sort of function in the same way as some good theology in delighting revealing magnifying beauty all of those those things uh, mentioned before but you know as this is holy week i thought we should stick with some of the the greats just let's go to the Two of really the best poets in the English language, and for that we need to go back to that uh, great high point of English literature and English poetry that was Elizabethan England. You know, it's it's strange, but once in a while there comes a time in and uh, a place in human history that just sort of somehow gives birth to giants. Uh, we see this in the 4th and 5th centuries of the early church where you just have all of a sudden all of these great doctors of the church all at the same time writing together, um, you know, Augustine and Ambrose and Chrysostom and the Cappadocian Fathers, all of them right around in the same, uh, same area. So also in Elizabethan England, we have Shakespeare, of course, uh, that giant, but also some really other important poets and artists. And so today i want going to start with John Donne. Uh, he lived from 1572 to 1631. So he was a contemporary of Shakespeare, uh, would have been a little bit younger than Shakespeare, but still contemporary. And I would say John Donne is actually... I'd like to characterize him, I think, as sort of just your uh, archetypal—I <laughs> can't say that word—you um, know, the the, uh, the archetype of the Elizabethan man. Uh, he served in the military, and so he's has has uh, seen parts of the world. You know, in that time of exploration, he was well. Know- he, he is well known for his love poems in uh, in that tradition of the, the Renaissance man writing writing uh, love poems to his his various his various women. Uh, but yet, at the same time, he was also deeply deeply religious and is very well known, uh, rightly, for his sacred poetry. He also uh, moved in his own life from Roman Catholicism to the Church of England. So, uh, you know, at the same time that the Church in England is having its Reformation under Henry VIII and uh, his children, he was John Donne was raised in a Roman Catholic family, but later became uh, ardent supporter of the English Church, the Protestant English Church, uh, and eventually became the Dean of Saint Paul's Cathedral in London. So, uh, with all of his poetry, uh, which is you know he has a is quite prodigious where should we go? Uh, I picked one of my personal favorites that I think is also well connected to this time of Holy Week and Good Friday, and that is his his poem, A Hymn to God, my God in my sickness. I picked this poem uh, not because it's the most focused on Christ's suffering and death. There's there's other examples of that, which we can maybe bring up later, Uh, but I picked this because it deals with John Donne's own death. He's contemplating his own death, and so that also invites us to consider our death, and contemplate uh, our end, and uh, then also it does contemplate Christ's death and how Christ's death is united uh, with our own and what it what that means for us. Uh, also, I wanted to I, I I wanted to pick this one because I find this this poem to be a really excellent example of john Donne's wit and uh when i use that term wit it's sort of a technical term when it comes to these elizabethan poets what are sometimes called the metaphysical poets because uh it, it doesn't just mean that they are super clever or or funny in sort of a a, a witty way that we might think of today but uh when we talk about uh, the poet's uh, wit we're talking about that creative or imaginative or poetic side of the human mind that is you that we use to see connections be- between seemingly different things that we can we can see analogies uh, when we look at the world and see that this this world, we, re- we realize that this world is not chaos where nothing is connected to anything else and it's all sort of random, but that this world is harmonious, which means that this thing is like this thing and this is like this. It's all connected because it's all coming from the creator. And uh, the Elizabethan man, the, the late medieval Renaissance man, it very much... Has this at his core that the world is harmonious, all under the um, the ordering of the Creator, and so that means you can look at two very very different uh, things and see connections between them and make analogies between them, and so uh, the po- this 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 poem is a good example of of that and using very uh, using metaphors, so. This poem really is a is quite an extended metaphor between sickness and death, and exploring the world and map make map making, uh, and you know it just is also that's perfect for the Elizabethan age as the explorers you know are going out and uh, filling in the the corners of the of the world right and starting to map out those unknown those unknown places. Uh, with, with that as sort of an introduction, I guess we should just get into the poem itself. So should I go ahead and uh, read it for you?
0: Yes, absolutely. Please do.
1: All right. A Hymn to God, My God in My Sickness by John Donne. Since I am coming to that holy room where with thy choir of saints forevermore I shall be made thy music, As I come, I tune the instrument here at the door, and what I must do then, think here before. Whilst my physicians, by their love, are grown cosmographers, and I their map, who lie flat on his bed, that by them may be shown that this is my southwest discovery, per fretum febris, by these straits to die. I joy... That in these straits I see my West, for though their currents yield return to none, what shall my West hurt me? As West and East, in all flat maps, and I am one, are one, so death doth touch the Resurrection. Is the Pacific Sea my home, or are the Eastern riches, is Jerusalem? Anyan and Magellan and Gibraltar, all straits and none but straits are ways to them, whether where Japhet dwell or Chem or Shem. We think that paradise and Calvary, Christ's cross and Adam's tree, stood in one place. Look, Lord, and find both Adams met in me. As the first Adam's sweat surrounds my face, May the last Adam's blood my soul embrace. So in this purple rapt receive me, Lord. By these his thorns give me his other crown. And as to others' souls I preached thy word, be this my text, my sermon to mine own. Therefore that he may raise, the Lord throws down.
0: The thing that struck me as you were reading was the profoundness of the imagery right i mean and and just thinking about the 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 metaphor in terms of 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 him being the map his physicians being cosmographers um and 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 then that that turn you know, we're, we're, he's, he's gone into such detail, you know, we're, we're into the exploration and the map and we get it. And all, all of a sudden it's just like that. He turns and it's paradise and Calvary, you know, that I think that that shift is, it's, it's almost jarring. I don't know if jarring is the right word, um, but it's, it's almost a, a confession of the fact that we can only understand these things, right? um, by faith, that we we can we can spill a lot of words uh, and and use a lot of air to to express that which we know. But then, when it comes to that which we can only understand through faith, it's, and here it is right and and there's and and there's this sense of of longing that that which he believes by faith and not that which he knows by experience that that be as true as what he's experienced
1: yeah i i think uh it it sort of feels like you know for the first more than half of the poem um he's he's hinting at what finally comes to full revelation in the last two stanzas right there. And so, as you said, it's sort of, um, we can know some of this by experience, but ultimately only what we know by faith, only, um, learning to know, uh, only learning to know God, uh, in his, in his revelation to us, are we truly able to know ourselves and all the other stuff that was kind of hinting at, at our end, um, at, at death and passage on into the life after death. Um, all of that becomes so much more clearer and certain. And that's actually, I think I'm glad you brought pointed that out because, uh, that that's a good connection really to the other poem we're going to look at from George Herbert As how do we know, uh, how, how do we really know ourselves and what's what's required to know yourself uh, is actually first that you know God? So uh, I, I guess before we get on to the uh, to the other poem, uh, I'll just mention a few of the uh, images that he's using, some of the metaphors here. Uh, he begins by talking about. Uh, him, his, his instrument that he needs to tune uh, before he can go in and join the choir of saints in heaven. And, and so that, uh, I suppose we could say, is his, his soul. Um, in a, in a, on one level, here at the very beginning of the poem, he's sort of tuning his poet, the poetic faculty of his mind in preparation for writing this poem for actually you know doing the work of the composition but that in that is also a metaphor for the preparation the tuning that he needs to do uh, on the instrument of his soul uh, before he can die and join the uh, join the saints in heaven and uh, perform God's music there and so uh, he's He's talking about his death very obviously in the next stanza, but this—that's uh, what this starts out as. Uh, he's contemplating preparation for his own death. Uh, we don't actually know when he. We're not quite sure when he wrote this. If it was either during um, during the sickness that that did lead to his death at the very end of his life, or if it was a um, an earlier. Uh, terrible sickness where he thought he was going to die but either way that's what he's doing and uh, and then you know you pointed out the the great uh, imagery of uh, you know the map making imagery and uh, again this is from the the age of discovery and with all the elizabethan explorers going out and uh, making their maps, uh, and so he likens himself to the map stretched out on the table, and the physicians are the com- cosmographers that are that are working, you know, working on him, giving their attention to uh, to his body. There's a little bit of interesting metaphor going on at the end of that second stanza, where he says that this is my southwest discovery, uh, perfretum febris, uh, uh, so. By these these straits of fever, uh, by these straits to die, uh, southwest right there has uh, some uh, a little it's a, it's a little metaphor there where you know the south is the re- would be the region of heat uh, and the west be the, being the region of decline. It's where the sun sets, right? And so you have death by fever, death by heat, uh, imagined there in. Um, in geog- geographical terms to keep going with his whole exploration metaphor. So he's saying that um, th- through, hi- th- through this fever that he's suffering, he is going to die. That is like going through straits uh, and discovering a new world. Right, that going through the Straits of Death, he's going to discover a new world on the other side, and I think there's a lot of fun uh, play on words uh, with the whole idea of straits. That you uh, straits, a a strait is a a a narrow body of water, right? And so it's a tight spot, and uh, we even use this metaphorically in our language all the time, where we say I'm in I'm in dire straits. And you're not really in a body of water, but you're in a tough time. You're in a a narrow passage that's hard to to go through. And so he goes on to uh, express that uh, in the next couple stanzas as as he sort of teases out this this exploration metaphor. Uh, I love the the one part here where he says, uh, you know, what shall my west hurt me? As west and east in all flat maps, and I am one. I'm a flat map. Are one west and east are one in, in a flat map, because the earth is round, right? Uh, so just as west and east touch each other in on uh, actually touch each other on a map, so death doth touch the resurrection. Uh, west, the region of decline, the re- the place of death is uh touches the east the place of resurrection right where the sun rises so uh, I I just love that that you can see a truth of the gospel even in something like the the world is round and uh, and you you when you when it looks like you're going to your death you're actually also getting closer to your the resurrection at the same time
0: yeah i absolutely loved that line and the image that comes to mind um you know hopefully our listeners will will never look at a map the same you know in yeah. terms of of seeing that uh the the truth of that reality
1: yeah i and actually this is this has inspired my own imagination uh in some ways that maybe i've picked it up from somewhere else and i don't um quite realize it i think it is related to uh it was it back in high school i read c.s lewis's a pilgrim's regress and i think i kind of got this meta this this image in my head from that but it's also from this poem where you know he says that east and west touch each other uh and then he in the last two stanzas he says that we think paradise and Calvary, Christ's cross and Adam's tree stood in one place. He's referencing a, an old, very old tradition that, uh, yeah, paradise was actually where uh, Christ's cross was, and that that the uh, uh, and it fits so well with all of our all of our uh, Lent and Holy Week uh, hymns and even our liturgy. Right, the proper preface is that uh, you know just as uh uh now i'm now it's going to escape me but you know that that the serpent who triumphed by the tree of the garden is overcome by christ and his the tree of the cross right and so this is playing on this very classic traditional um understanding of of christ's death being the the tree his uh the tree of the cross is the new tree of life that, uh, overcomes what was done through the tree of knowledge. Uh, you know, go, you, either the proper preface for Holy Week, uh, describes this so well, or Stephen Starkey's hymn, The Tree of Life, um, and, uh, oh, the, uh, one of my favorite Holy Week hymns, uh, sing my tongue the glorious battle right that's a fantastic example of this and all the all the uh iconography a lot or at least a lot of the iconography of Christ's crucifixion has uh you you what you follow the drops of blood going down the cross and there at the base of the cross or under underground under the cross is a skull and in one way you could say well this is just um you know Christ's death overcoming death, His blood uh, forgiving sins, so that we might live. Uh, but it's it's also based on this sort of idea that that's where Adam, that's Adam's skull. You know that he was he's he's buried there under under the tree. Uh, anyways, uh, going back to the East and West thing and how this sparked my own imagination, I like to think about how. God you know, God drove Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden so that they could not get to the tree of life, and he places the, the the flaming sword and the cherubim there, right? And you can't so you cannot get back to Eden that way. And they have to go out the, they have to they have to go away. And the law is is so driving them away from the presence of God. And yet if the earth is round. What it means is that they keep going until they come back around to the other side, and that we actually, when we come around to the other side, that's where we, we find, we, we see Christ crucified, there's his cross, and we realize we've kind of come to the back door of paradise, so we couldn't go in. The way we that that way was barred. One way was barred to us, but in Christ's death and resurrection, a new a new way has been opened to get back to the tree of life. You know, just kind of going around um, uh, around the world and coming back to the same pl- so coming back to the same place, but but by a different route.
0: I I love that image uh, that you just painted for us, and just thinking about. You know the 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 way that that puts a picture to you know Jesus' death is death's undoing. Yeah. Right. And and I I love that. And you think about all of the imagery when you think about life and death. And I mean, we even talk about that when when we when we. Um, uh, celebrate birthdays right you know it's it's another trip around the sun and you there's yeah. there's this the there's there's constant life is constantly being um you know equated to to journeys and a circular journey at that and so uh i i love how this all comes together uh to proclaim the the truth of the gospel
1: yeah and speaking of the Proclamation of the Gospel. I should just make one last little comment about the final stanza. Being a pastor, here's another reason why this poem is one of my favorites. Because John Donne is a pastor, he's a preacher, and uh, you know, very uh, gifted, very gifted preacher. And here, as he's preparing himself for death, he uh, he realizes that he needs to he needs the word of God himself. For him, for himself as well. He, what he preached to others, he needs to hear and believe for himself. And so he says, as, and as to others' souls, I preached thy word. Be this my text, my sermon to mine own, my own soul. And the, the last line is his text, his sermon, this quoted line at the very end. Therefore, that he may raise the Lord throws down. That we that you know, just as Christ had to suffer and die, and then rise and enter His glory, so also we die with Christ, and so also are raised with.
0: Absolutely beautiful.
1: Well, we should do the other poem here before we we could we could just talk about all these 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 poems are are so fantastic. We could talk about them uh, for several hours, but uh, one other great example comes from. George Herbert, who again is a a great giant of English poetry from the same period as Shakespeare and John Donne, he is a contemporary and a and even a a friend of Donne. There were some uh, actual connections between them and their and their their families. Uh, He was a little, I think, he was younger younger. He was also younger than. uh, than john Donne, and he also died much younger and maybe one reason he's not quite as famous as john Donne is one he just he didn't live as long so he couldn't write as much and his poetry is i think pretty, pretty much exclusively sacred poetry whereas john Donne wrote you know love poetry and so people know him for for other reasons uh george herbert uh, he lived from 1593 to 1633. And uh, he's just a bit more, I, I guess, down to earth, in lack, uh, lack for lack of a better phrase, a bit more down to earth than done in both his life and his poetry. Uh, he could have been probably much more famous if he had chosen a different path, but uh, he eventually was uh, he became a country parson and was given the one position at his, uh, church and, and stayed there for, uh, you know, a few, for a few years until, uh, actually really was only a few years. He was, he started there in 1630 and he died three years later, but those three years of his time as a country parson were very formative, uh, for him. The, uh, The poem that we have today to contemplate is called The Agony. So I guess I'll go ahead and read that for us so we can talk about it a bit more. The Agony by George Herbert. Philosophers have measured the mountains, fathomed the depths of the seas of states and kings, walked with a staff to heaven and traced fountains, But there are two vast spacious things, the which to measure it doth more behoove. Yet few there are that sound them, sin and love. Who would know sin let him repair unto Mount Olivet? There shall he see a man so wrung with pains that all his hair, his skin, his garments bloody be. Sin is that press and vice which forceth pain to hunt his cruel food through every vein. Who knows not love, let him assay and taste that juice which on the cross a pike did set again a Then let him say, if ever he did taste the like. Love is that liquor sweet and most divine which my God feels as blood, but I as wine. Well, once again, I'm going to toss it over to you, Jocelyn, because I know this is a personal favorite of yours, and uh, I'd love to hear what thoughts you have on it.
0: Absolutely. I... I'm appreciating this. It, it is one of my absolute favorites, and and one that I spend time uh, during Lent and and especially Holy Week uh, pondering. Uh, we actually always uh, print this on the back of, of the bulletin uh, during oh, during Holy Week, and so uh, our our entire congregation can can ponder this. One of the things, uh, just having come off of our uh, conversation about uh, John Dunn's poem, it, one thing that I, I hadn't appreciated, I think, as much as I am now is that first stanza. Uh, just thinking about the context in which George Herbert wrote, you know, that th- that thinking about I had always because I, I teach ancient literature and history, um, you know, when I think about philosophers, I automatically go to the ancients. And so so I had always thought of this in terms of of the scope of history. Right. The entire scope of history. But thinking about the context in which George Herbert Herbert was writing. Um, Not to say that he wasn't thinking about the whole scope of history, uh, but but it just it gives a a different nuance to it that I hadn't considered uh, before. And so I I appreciate that. And then I I always love just how many uh, layers, the depth, uh, especially in that second stanza, thinking about uh, the Mount of Olives. Right. And the reality of the work that went on there, uh, and not just during Jesus' passion, right? Um, that it was there, it, it was a working olive press, right? Yeah. And yeah. so bringing that, the, the visceral reality of that to us, and then um, putting Jesus in that vice. Right, that that the sin is what put him uh, in that that press, that olive press, and vice, and and literally squeezed the the life out of him. Right, I, I, yeah. the the imagery there, based on the reality of where he actually was, is just magnificent.
1: Yeah, it is. If I can maybe just uh, point out all the. Uh, Pressing images that are that are here, um, and and in a way, you know, so, it, you know, you're right that it's it was an olive press. George Herbert alters it just a little bit and makes it more of a wine press, um, which goes well with his, uh, you know, with the fact that it's Christ's blood that's being literally, you know, squeezed out of him, uh, both on Mount, the Mount of Olives and on Calvary. Uh, Johann Gerhardt in his meditations on Christ's passion does the same thing he points out the same thing the, the you know that this is a olive press and here we see Christ being pressed and crushed uh, like olives or grapes are crushed uh, so here uh, in the second stanza, we we he says you know the, go to Mount up, go to the Mount of Olives and there you will see a man so wrung with pains so you know the image of wringing uh or like a rag or something you know squeezing it uh, so that everything is all his hair and skin and garments are bloody and then he says sin is that press and vice and it's a fun play double meaning there with sin is vice right in, as in, yeah. in terms of vice being you know, wrongdoing is uh, a uh, sinful habit, but also a vice, as in a vice grip, you know, that's squeezing, that's holding, pressing. Sin is that press and vice which forceth pain to hunt his cruel food through every vein. So it's forcing, as you said uh, so well, it's forcing the life right out out of Christ. And then finally, and then it keeps on going. So the In the second stanza, you have the pressing of Jesus. And then in the third stanza, we have the wine that comes from that pressing. uh, And we get to taste it. Uh, He says, who knows not love, let him assay. Uh, And assay is a word, it can mean uh, to test or to try in, in uh, the way you might test a metal, you know, to prove it. Um, and even we say to, to try it or prove, prove it, but it can also mean to, to try as in to, you know, here, try this. Why don't you, you know, almost sample, I guess. I kind of think, uh, again, this, there's there's a double meaning in the word that Herbert is playing with, uh, that there's the, the, testing or trying of a metal which fits with the whole pressing thing, right? That this is going through um, a, a some sort of purification process, uh, but also the just, why don't you try this? Why don't you sample this juice, right? It says, taste that juice uh, that has been squeezed out of Christ. And he, this is probably, I think, the the greatest image in the whole thing he says taste that juice which on the cross a pike did set again a brooch this is the description of you know piercing or uh um uh, uncorking a a wine barrel right it's so so that it's saying the soldier who stuck the spear into christ's side into his into his heart is like um you know knocking off the the stopper of the wine barrel and letting the wine just uh gush out and so then finally in the last couplet which i just you know after the first time reading this poem, I decided I have to at least memorize this last couplet because it's just so beautiful uh, We get finally what is this what is this wine, this juice uh, and where do we uh, where do we get to to taste it? Uh, he says, "Love is that liquor sweet and most divine which my God feels as blood, but I as wine and so there he directs us to the holy communion
0: and i i love uh that you know just looking at stanza two and stanza three the last couplet in both of those lines uh in in stanza two the last couplet begins sin is that press and vice and stanza three the 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 first line of that couplet begins love is that liquor sweet and most divine and just how those parallel one one another um i I think that's just fantastic uh in that regard
1: well, and he's he's answering sort of the question that he sets yeah. up in the very first stanza, where he says, you know, the scientists, the philosophers, the explorers, they've all tried to figure out the world, they've tried to know, they want to know everything, uh, but he says there's two things that, uh, you know, not, uh, very few have um, Really sounded them, have really tested them, and tried to measure them, right? And that's sin and love, and how do you really know what sin is, and how do you really know what how do you really know what love is? And this goes back to what we we talked about with John Donne's poem that uh, you know how do you really know yourself, and uh, how, how do you even even truly know the depth of your sin? And the only way to know ourselves is to know who. Uh, Is to know who Christ is. The only way to know what sin really is, is to look at Christ's passion and see what he goes through because of that sin, right? And also, at the same time, the only way to know what true love is, what God's love is, is to look again, to look at that very same passion and see the heart of God, literally to see the heart of Jesus being pierced by that spear and opened up to us. And so uh, I like, uh, I would say actually that uh, this poem is a a beautiful expression of what Martin Luther calls the chief topic of theology, that is man the sinner and God the justifier of the sinner. And so here we have that expressed in a poetic form.
0: Absolutely fantastic. George Herbert remains one of my favorites, and *The Agony* is just phenomenal. And Now, we we've uh, the last uh, few episodes we've we've done together, uh, we've really encouraged our listeners to uh, interact with us uh, about about these things, and and so I was thinking, you know we're i mean we could talk about poetry for <laughs> for weeks on end. Uh there's so much. Uh even in these two poems we could certainly talk more. But maybe you could give us uh maybe a list that we could ponder um and and we can include that in the episode notes and then maybe our our listeners could uh read those poems and uh and consider those with us uh as we as we as we go through Holy Week,
1: yeah, I would love uh, love for the listeners to uh, share either you know what they think about any of these poems that we're mentioning or any others that they m- might know. Uh, share those with us and uh, talk about them. That would be great. So uh, a few suggestions first to to stick with John Donne and George Herbert. Um, I would say go find. Uh, this it's a bit longer, but it's divided up into sections uh, by John Donne. This poem called La Corona, which means the crown. And uh, actually, if we uh, we might come back and talk about some Easter poems in another week, and I'm going to bring that one bring that one up there. This is a poem that covers the whole life of Christ. And if you just go go find it, you'll see. I think if you pay attention. To how each section begins and ends, you'll see why it's called a crown. Uh, You look for some sort of a a circle in the structure of the poem, Uh, but that's a fantastic one to contemplate the life of Christ. And then from George Herbert, one of my uh, really one of my favorites is Love Three. He's got he's got at least three poems that are titled. Love, and so they're titled Love One, Two, and Three. But Love Three is a wonderful poem for contemplating the Lord's Supper, and what does worthy, what is, what does worthy reception of the Lord's Supper look like? What does that mean? So it's a good poem, I think, for Monday Thursday as we prepare for uh, receiving the sacrament there. Uh, Maybe a couple modern poets that would be worth considering. One, I don't know her poetry that well, but uh, Mary Oliver is a is a quite well known modern poet, and uh, she's got this one little poem called "Gethsemane" that I just found really beautiful uh, in the images that she brings up about the uh, the disciples and uh, how they fell asleep in Gethsemane. So it's a little different part different part of the passion story and one of my favorite modern poets and and also commenta- commentator on um, on poetry is uh, Malcolm Gite. I think I've mentioned him on the podcast here before and he's he's got several uh, really nice uh, sonnets on the different Parts of the Holy Week story. Uh, in particular, I liked his sonnet on Palm Sunday, uh, and then also a couple from the end of uh, the Passion where Je- Jesus' body is taken down from the cross, and uh, also Jesus is laid in the tomb. So those might be a few that our listeners would enjoy.
0: Absolutely fantastic! Um, I'm I'm looking forward to exploring these poems myself, and uh, we'll have to make sure that uh, we cons- continue this conversation uh, on 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 Facebook, uh, it, which is kind of the easiest place for uh, conversation to continue on on these things. Uh, Pastor Dodgers, this has been absolutely golden uh, as as we've looked at uh, these these poems, uh, these hymns for Holy Week that we can ponder uh, as, as we meditate on Christ's suffering and his passion. You're going to be back with us uh, for another special episode uh, for Easter, so um, I would highly encourage our listeners um, to to come back, Uh, Easter week. We'll have another episode uh, where we ponder uh, uh, some Easter poetry, and I'm really looking forward to that conversation.
1: Thank you very much. I am too, and uh, have a blessed Holy Week.
0: You as well. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.